Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Danny Christensen is a Danish photographer and director based in northern Italy. While working and living in New York City, he began a project called Urban Huntsman as an excuse to get out of the city and explore while also using his talents for visual communication. Through his website and social media, Danny portrays, as he puts it, the hunt for silence and a good meal. He's also a regular contributor on Modern Huntsman, the publication headed up by one of my recent guests, Tyler Sharp. We discussed outdoor media, European hunting laws and culture, and some of the incredible experiences Danny's had while documenting traditions in Eastern Europe and British Columbia. At the end, he also shared some really exciting news about an upcoming project. To find Danny's beautiful photography, stories, and wild game recipes, head to The Urban Huntsman online and on social media. Enjoy! I'm joined by Danny Christensen. Danny, how are you? I'm good, mate. You? Great. Yeah, we're uh, on opposite sides of the world right now, so I appreciate you uh, doing this. It's about 11 a.m. my time and 7 p.m. your time. 7 p.m. <laughs> my time. Normally, I'm, I'm, I'm deep in the, the cooking and and uh, getting dinner ready at this time, but uh, you, uh, you got the honor of making the exception, so... <laughs> Well, I know how good of a cook you are, so I'm sure you're uh, disappointing a few people. I've been following your stuff on social media for a while now, and um, mainly kind of looking at your recipes. I think I used one of your venison recipes, but for a boar shoulder, Mm -hmm. for a hog shoulder, Mm -hmm. and it worked really great. But yeah, tell me, let's, uh, let's kind of dig into your brand, the Urban Huntsman, and then, you know, kind of give people an introduction to that. And then we can go back to, you know, how you grew up and things like that. So so tell me about Urban Huntsman and, and what the goal is for it. Well, the Urban Huntsman project was uh, at the very beginning, very selfish kind of project, actually. I didn't really have any intentions of taking this to, um, to anywhere other than just uh, giving myself a reason to, to get out of New York City where I lived for, for 20 years. Um, the the project was born, I guess, about seven, seven, about seven years ago now, and it was just basically allowing myself to um, distract myself and take the time out from my regular work and the, the day-to-day kind of hustle in the in the city, and then uh, getting out into nature and reconnecting again. Um, I, I kind of grew up with nature around me, and I had nature around me the most most of my adult life in some form um, but you know in new york city you are at least in the perception of the general public and me included at that time uh, you're kind of isolated from from any kind of uh, experience with uh, hands-on or foots on in nature so to speak um yeah. so the project was born out of my necessity to get out of the city and find a way of, of doing that and and continue my exploration of, of storytelling. I'm a commercial photographer and director for for a living. So um, by doing this, I figured that it could be interesting to see how those two worlds could could merge, and I could start telling stories around my my interest in in the outdoors, in in hunting and fishing primarily, and diving, uh, spear fishing, and things like that. Um, so that was. It was quite selfish reasons to start out with, but it soon became very apparent to me that there are many of the conversations that I had, like with my my peers in the fashion industry in in New York City, um, evolved quite interestingly because uh, as soon as they started asking about who I am and and what I do and what I do is normally you know what do you do is the first question for some yeah. reason that uh, people find that to be the most important thing and. And I started thinking about how I should answer that question and uh, started thinking about I wanted what I do 
to be much more of in sync with who I am. Um, so I, I think that was a, a process that, that kind of emerged from that. And these conversations with the, you know, with the, with the people around me, the people in the fashion industry, when I started telling them about who I am and not what I do, um, it's always, it was always kind of a, <clears throat> a surprised response and, and specifically with the hunting, you know, it's a very foreign for many of these people that are living in, in big cities, metropolis cities today. And, and I found it interesting that within a few minutes of conversation, I could gain a, an understanding and appreciation of my choices of actually going out and, and harvesting some of my own meat and uh, foraging or fishing and actually putting uh, putting an effort both uh, time-wise and money uh, financially and monetarily into to doing that. And, um, yeah. and that made me think that maybe I actually have a responsibility as a, a storyteller, a professional storyteller maybe I have a responsibility to figure out a way that I could continue to um, maybe open up the eyes of some of these people that are not accustomed to farming or to hunting or to fishing or have uh, you know, a day-to-day -day or even month-to-month -month or yearly kind of connection with nature. Um, so that was kind of how the, the project was born initially. So how would one of those conversations typically go if you're uh, if you're out to dinner with some New York uh, some New York socialites and they say what do you do um, how would you answer that well first of all I would say that um, I would say that I'm a, a storyteller a communicator I, I, I deal in uh, different ways of communicating um, for brands or for editorial outlets or for um, for anybody interested in paying me, I'm a little bit of a hooker that way. So I, I kind of get uh, <laughs> prostituted out and, and and have to do some of these jobs that are not normally something that really um, floats my boat or, or triggers me in any way, shape, or form. Um, so the conversations went very differently. Each one, depending on the people close, that I was having the conversations with, how much alcohol was consumed at that time or any other substances for that matter. So um, when the subject of, of hunting and fishing came up, um, you know, I can imagine there's a lot of sort of disconnect there. So I guess the idea of using your communication skills to, to show people, yeah, this is what I do. Yeah, I kill things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But... I do it with a sense of grace and elegance mm -hmm. and a sophistication. Um, it's it's really what attracted me to your work and to Modern Huntsman's work, which I know you've mm -hmm. you've worked with them as well. It's just such a beautiful representation of the pursuit. Thank you. I appreciate that. So I I figured, um, you know, if I again if I can go in and I can uh, gain respect and appreciation even from somebody's people that some of them that are considering themselves non-hunters until I have five minutes with them and then they have a, a total a completely different understanding of what that means. I figured that there's a way of communicating that. I figured that there's a way that we can reach these people, that we can build a bridge uh, between our outdoor lifestyle and what that means and build bridges uh, uh, mentally for some of these people that are, are disconnected from their food sources and, and don't really make the direct connection between what is on the plate and what happened prior to that. Um, I, I, I always say that you know we were equally responsible for uh, for the killing, whether or not you do, uh, whether you do it with your fork and knife, or I choose a bow, or I choose a rifle, um, yeah. it's the same result, and something happens before it ends up on the plate. And even the vegans and the vegetarians, there's blood on every single plate. There's no way around that. And when you start taking that conversation and understanding the the broader spectrum of the impact that we have as humans and these choices that we're making. Um, and that goes, you know, 360 around our lives. So there's there's uh, implications of, of the choices that we're making, but specifically food-wise, it is uh, directly involving uh, the death of animals. And the vegetarians have a hard time kind of digesting the fact that 
uh, that soy, for example, soy production is the second largest reason for deforestation in the world. And when you start thinking about that, you know, understand that there's there's nothing that comes clean. There is a sacrifice that's being made before. And in my opinion, you know, I'm I'm living in Italy now. I moved to Italy three years ago, and I I told a guy, listen, if you were, he was a uh, he was kind of questioning the, me going out and and going wild boar hunting, and there's a lot of people that are frowning on that in Italy, and we can get into a little bit about that why that is. Um, but I told him, well, do you eat meat? Yeah, he was like, I love prosciutto. I was like, well, in my opinion, if you can't go out and kill this pig yourself. In my opinion, you lose your right to eat prosciutto. You shouldn't be. You really do because it's the same thing. You are killing it. You are just killing it when you take your uh, take your cash out of your pocket and you pay for the prosciutto, and then you eat it. Uh, you I might want to be careful uh, telling those Italians that. <laughs> yeah, no, but then again, uh, you know they're they're um, they're passionate people for sure, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless, they also. Uh, they also do listen every now and then, at least. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think one a couple of things you mentioned there about bridge building. Obviously, you're doing it with visual communication and storytelling um, through your website and your and your social media. But food is such another big component of what you do and what a lot of brands in the last five, ten years seem to be focusing on, bringing mm-hmm. new hunters into the fold through food. It's one of the things that got me hunting. Um, I was pretty disgusted by, you know, I, I eat a lot of meat and um, became a little bit more aware of, of factory farming and, and the conditions mm-hmm. that these animals are raised in. And that's what got me out into the field with a bow. Um, you know, and and I think it's a really effective way to, when you give someone a piece of wild game that's been cooked well and see the surprise on their face and the, mm-hmm. you know, the appreciation for, Oh my gosh, that's not gamey. It's not, it's not that yeah. chewy. It's, it's actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really satisfying. So yeah, I think, I think food is kind of one of the, the big ways in to, to build those bridges. Uh, listen, if you look at this, I, mean, I, I like to back my ideas, my thoughts up with, with some statistics. And if you look at it, we have 95% of the world's population are carnivores. They eat meat. So, uh, what is the alternative? The alternative, even if you're, if you're out of, of those 95%, you're about the 3% that might go out and buy organic every now and then. Even that life, a, a life of a, a, an animal farmed under uh, or the organic uh, conditions, well, it's, it's nothing, it's life is nothing compared to what a wild animal has. And yet there is a, a tremendous amount of stress restraint for their, for their natural instincts. Um, so I don't think that you can, that you can honestly say that, uh, that my way of factory farming or organic farming is better than going out and harvesting, clean harvesting a, a wild living animal that dies in the instant and and dies in in the environment that it was born and raised in and where it should be and i think the i think the majority of those 95 percent of of carnivores are are gonna see that if if they don't they do it because they're it's too emotional for them and they don't want to make that connection they don't want to talk about it they don't want to make that connection from their own foods to what they're consuming and then to that living animal, it becomes something of, of a personal turnoff because they are just, they don't want to be aware of it. They don't want to be conscious about it. So they're trying to shield themselves away from the fact that the, in Italy, again, the prosciutto that they're uh, eating, you know, the majority of the pigs that are being uh, slaughtered for that has a, a miserable life, have a miserable life. They grow up in confinement. They grow up under bad conditions. They are walking around with broken legs or they're pumped up with antibiotics or hormones and you know they don't want to make that connection they don't want to think about it and yeah yeah as i said before i think you lose your right to it if you can't pull the trigger yourself or if you can't put the knife to the throat of the pig then you can't eat it i'm sorry then go out and eat a eat a damn carrot and shut up i mean that's <laughs> but it's also true that of those 95 percent of, of carnivores on earth um we don't have the capacity 
or the the habitat remaining for everyone to go out and and you know hunt wild animals. So I do think that um, hunting is a really great way of building an appreciation for for animal life, uh, relating to those animals, getting you know living walking in their steps a little mm-hmm. bit and understanding what it means to be wild. Um, but then you know you can turn around and and use what you've learned and support uh, more holistic management. Uh, you know, much more responsibly, ethically raised animals, and spend a little bit more money on your meat. Um, yeah, but no, yeah, I, I totally think that's agree. an important distinction to make. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Of course not. I'm not expecting. I'm not trying to convert all those uh, carnivores into uh, to hunters by no means. But I am trying to make them think and connect the dots of of um, what is on their plate and what came before it and what life they had and make some conscious decisions exactly as you're saying when you're in the supermarket then pay that a little bit more and, and today everything could be changed in a snap and it could be it could be um it could be the conventionally farmed proteins or or greens for that sake the vegetable for that sake that are more expensive it's all about a political decision. They could just change the, the tax laws around the products if they really wanted to do it and make a big impact. Uh, but obviously, there's a tremendous amount of lobbying and, and, and big industries uh, that will never let that happen. Um, right. But at least maybe it could be a consumer. Hopefully, it could be a consumer-driven change. And we, we see that all the time when there's a with a shift in the in the consumer habits, then then we see the big companies there following suit, and well, you know, we're seeing some of the big companies now are coming in, and the conventional companies are starting to to focus more on the organic products because they can see they're raising the the concern of the consumers, and the and the consumers are willing to actually uh, put their their money where their mouth is and and pay that little bit more of a, a difference there is today, which is really minimal way if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's growing transparency in food production. Um, you know, in the mid 20th century, especially in the U.S., um, there was powerful lobbying to to block this type of of production from even being shown. It was mm-hmm. it was illegal for journalists. Uh, they call them ag gag laws, uh, where people really didn't know the conditions that were happening. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that's been really a, a really important shift. But uh, I, I want to talk about where did you start to develop this ethic around animals, around wild, um, wild places? Uh, was this something that came from your childhood or from your family? Uh, it came from my childhood. Yeah. Uh, when I was, um, from when I was five, we moved to, uh, in there, I'm from Denmark originally. And, um, in Denmark, we call these farms, hobby farms, because they are not, you know, they're not a working farm. You don't live off at of the farm. And my parents didn't live off at of the farm. Um, but it was a previously working farm. And we had, uh, uh, what is that, acres? That is yeah, roughly 100 acres to it. Um, we didn't, the agricultural land that was actually farmed, we didn't farm it. We leased it out to a local farmer. But um, my parents wanted me and my sister to grow up in in an under condition of of uh, understanding where the food was coming from, providing the food for the table, having that garden, having having chickens, having pigs, and uh, so vivid memories from my childhood of of the butcher arriving at the farm and that that pig we had just been training to sit and whistle and it will come running up to us. Uh, uh, we were seeing that and that, you know a bolt going into to the brain of the pig and then uh, the throat was slit and the blood were running out into a bucket for blood sauces after. And obviously it was a bit of, um, it was a bit brutal to to see it and to witness it. And I think it, it developed a sensitivity in me that um, I wish that many people had. I think that they will make different choices if they had that sensitivity, if they've, they've seen it um, it forces you to respect that life. It forces you to consider your responsibility for that animal's life prior to that moment of slaughter. Um, I, I, I think that that's, that could be very, 
valuable for many people to see. So with the Urban Huntsman project, what I wanted to do was to take some of that experience that I had as a as a kid and and seeing these things and looking back at them and remembering them and remembering some of the feelings that I had and and kind of how um, I was emotionally impacted by those um, those killings of these animals, whether it was a, a chicken that got a head chopped off or it was a a pig that was slaughtered. Um, you know, it, it was a deeply impactful for me. So I figured if I can figure out a way to communicate this visually and use my my camera and my my pen for the writing and and communicate this in a way that it was palatable for the majority of people where they could see uh, the honesty in it, they could see also the beauty in it, they could see the respect in it. And I figured that there's a way that I can communicate this where it would be received in a positive way, where it can help open conversations instead of closing doors in my face. And it could it could help being a, a conversation starter also about uh, the, the bigger pictures of, of uh, consumerism and, and how we spend our money and and why we why we OK with not paying a, a dollar extra for organic chicken breast and than the conventionally farmed chicken breast. Um, yeah, I think you've got the right idea, man. I mean, it's uh, it's for people who haven't seen your work, uh, and we'll plug this at the end as well, <clears throat> but uh, check out the Urban Huntsman Project. Really beautiful stuff, great recipes. Um, I think it's really effective at, at, at achieving what you're saying. Uh, it, in terms of the photography and the storytelling and the the videography is that something you learned early on as well i know you worked in the fashion industry um what when did all that stuff start yeah it was kind of a kind of trial trial by doing i mean uh, this um i didn't really have a much of an interest in in food photography for per se i had a i had an assistant a full-time assistant from denmark uh this guy rasmus who have done some of that food photography before and with the previous uh, photographer that he worked with and and then we kind of started that interest or started that together and and that developed into becoming what it is um the food photography that that you're seeing in the majority of the of the uh the urban husband projects that's been developed ever since uh i think the aesthetics of it is something that i that I played around with. I, I think growing up in Denmark, you have a strong sense of, of design and, and shapes and forms. It's just a, implemented in, in, the, in the culture there and in general. Um, so I think I had that from childhood, just simply from growing up in Denmark. And then and then I was just trial by, by doing. I knew what I liked and I implemented uh, I mean, implemented some of those, those key elements from my fashion photography into the food photography. Uh, the contrast, the saturation, a bit of a, a bit of a kind of a moodiness to some of the images where others uh, there's not. So, so that was kind of a merge of, of those two. Yeah, that's an interesting comment about um, the culture, you know, and, and growing up with that sense of design and aesthetics. In my day job as a landscape architect, Copenhagen is widely known as <laughs> you know this this hub of fantastic design. Uh, yeah, urban yeah. design and landscape architecture. There's so many beautiful yeah. projects there. Uh, is that largely because it's a confined, small nation? Like, what is where? What is that in in the culture that uh, that produces such beautiful design? I think that's a couple of different. Um, there's a historic uh, link back to craftsmanship in Denmark, and it's always been that uh, we've been. You know, we're a small nation, and. And I think we have been forced to um, develop these skills as a small nation prior, you know, going back 100 years, you know, you didn't travel, communication didn't travel the way that it does today, inspiration didn't travel the way that it does today. Um, so it developed, it developed in the country out of necessity because we are so few people there. Um, and then we have the long winters. I think the long winters has a huge role in that um, because it's dark. You know, we get the, we get to October and we have really long nights and it doesn't get light outside before nine o'clock or 9.30 a.m. And, 
and then it gets dark again at, at five uh, or, or even early in the middle of, of winter. So those months are really being used inside and, um, you know, it's, it's like giving a child a, a ton of different toys and and they will play with the toys but you know you give them nothing and they will start to think and they'll get creative and they start to develop their senses and they start to they start to create and i think that's part of the huh. same because we are uh, we are um shielded from any kind of other activities normal activities daytime uh, activities and we were forced to to kind of look inside and, and contemplate and play so that's I think that's those, that's those two factors. Um, you can see it partly also in the other Scandinavian countries, but I think Denmark is still, Sweden for sure has a, has a lot of, of, of the same uh, design and in both clothing and music. And so creativity is very um, predominant in, in Sweden and, and Denmark was, yeah. Yeah, everyone knows about Ikea. It's kind of uh, representative <laughs> of, yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of the landscape, of Denmark, I mean, it's. Um, do you know the in terms of size and, and area what U.S. state it would be comparable to? Mm, I I know we're there's five we can fit five of Denmark and three of Denmark in in New York, I think. So wow, so tiny country. <laughs> yeah, so we have five point five million people there in a relatively small area, so. What is uh? It's all private land, right? Like, tell me about the the landscape and the kind of the whole hunting culture there. Uh, it's not all private land. There's a lot of state land also, uh, but state okay. land is being managed in a very different way than it is in the states, for example. Uh, you know, the North American model is it's it doesn't uh, it's it's non-existing uh, in in Europe in any of the European countries. Uh, I think Sweden and, and Norway have a little bit of that model um, in the northern area of those two countries. But in Denmark, it is primarily private lands, and then it is state-owned land. Um, and private land, that means that typically in order for you to hunt, you have to lease. Either you need to own your own land or you need to lease a piece of land in order for you to to hunt. So typically, there's a, there's a little uh, group of hunters that gets together, and then they... they uh, lease uh, a farmer's land or a couple of different farmers' land, and then combine it together, and that's typically how it works. On the state land, there is um, there's hunts every year that you can book yourself in on. There's also certain pieces of land that you can actually larger pieces of land um, that you can rent today. But that's a relatively new um, kind of model that they're testing out. Is that similar across most European countries? Yeah, it is. It is. How does it compare to uh, Italy? Yeah, so Italy is a little bit different. Uh, you can compare Italy a bit to the United States because there is state land and there uh, and there is um, private lands, and you have the right. So the game belongs to the people. which is kind of you know similar to what it is in the states. Um, the big difference is you can't freely hunt where you want. Uh, if you buy a, a license or tag, you can't, like you can, when I lived in New York, I would go to a different state that would just simply buy an out of state, uh, license and, uh, the tax that I, that I could, or I could apply for a lottery, whatever, you can't do that here. It's not free like that. And foreigners can hunt you. That so you, you have to be... I want to invite you over, but, uh, I can't take you hunting. <laughs> <laughs> so my uh my heritage is actually from that area um northern oh, really? italy um, okay. there's a okay. tiny little town called bagnasco the same as my last name okay <laughs> so i've always wanted to go up there i think it's in emilia romagna um that's my region that's where oh, I am. great okay yeah yeah um so you, you mentioned earlier the the wild boar hunting issue it, my understanding was that um urban cities urban areas in italy had an issue increasingly with wild boar coming into the cities you're nodding your head what why is it uh why do they have a problem with hunting them i think it's a uh, it's a public image issue um it's also uh an italian issue uh in the sense of the italians are not all of them 
there's a generation, I should say, maybe I explain it this way. In in my opinion, from what I've seen over the last three years since I've been here, there's a generation issue. There's an issue with certain hunters not being able to um, conduct themselves properly out in the field. Um, every year, that's quite a few people that get uh, killed by gunshot wounds uh, from these specific hunts, where, where it's basically a group hunt um, uh, where the, the, uh, the dogs are driving the wild boar and then yeah. uh, there's a group of hunters that's stationed around and, and there's a uh, one or two drivers that drives the dogs through and gets the boar out of a certain area. Um, there's a relatively high accident rate uh, for these. Um, yeah. And one of the problems, I think, uh, I recently kind of came to that conclusion is that there's not, uh, there's not really any practice areas. They don't have shooting ranges uh, like we had in many other areas of, of Europe. You can't hear. There's nowhere that within a two and a half, three hour radius that I can drive to and have a driving range where I can have a moving target, for example, so I can actually practice a moving shot. You know, okay. so that will be that will be the first thing that people needs to to actually get a gun in hand and, and do these tests. Uh, in my opinion, there should be a, a shooting test on a driving target, a moving target every five years or something like that. So they can prove that, that, that people are responsible and they can actually somewhat hit a target. Uh, I think that will be the first thing. Um, then there's, there's been other incidents where they're you know, where, where the boar has been wounded and it's been uh, some some people have found it and you know it's that type of hunting there's a there's a higher risk for wounding the animals um, because it's just it's moving targets you know it's it's not the same as a selective hunt where you go out and put your crosshairs on something that's standing still uh, moving at a at a relatively walking pace or something like that so yeah in terms of the weaponry uh, my understanding is it's it's actually very difficult to acquire guns and ammunition in Italy. Is that right? Huh. It's kind of a yes and no answer because it is relatively easy to actually get a hand on a, a gun, oh. but there's a tremendous amount of, of paperwork that goes into it. Uh, so when I go in and buy ammunition, first of all, I can only buy 20 um, rifle rounds at the time. Okay. And every single time I buy them, I need to go to the local police and register those 20. Wow. So that's just fucking ridiculous. I'm part of my French <laughs> here, but that is just a completely retarded. Uh, that's wild. I, I don't understand that. I mean, put up a system. But that, again, it's the same thing with everything in, in Italy. But put up a system where you go into these shops and, and it gets registered there. I mean, you register your license number and then it goes into a system. That's it. I mean, well, why there's this um, over-protective uh, uh, governing, governing of, of these weapons and ammunition that doesn't make any sense where where they should take a lot of that focus, maybe put it somewhere else, continued education for hunters, for example. Yeah, we're heading in that direction in a lot of states in the U.S., uh, but in terms of the education, I totally agree. I mean, the hunter education here... Is pretty minimal um, yeah, and I'm sure you remember mm -hmm. you know you kind of get your you do your little online course and and that's it yeah. but um, there's not really a whole lot of ethics or understanding of the North American model of wildlife management that's mm -hmm. imparted at that time that's stuff that yeah. people either learn from from their fathers or mothers or yeah. have to learn themselves but when I got my hunter education I didn't I wasn't any the better in terms of being a good no. steward no, and I think that, that that's actually a big challenge. Um, so in Denmark, for example, they're doing they're doing that. And so uh, since I took my license, there is um, there is the legal curriculum you need to go through, and there's an ethical curriculum that you need to go through. Hunting ethics. You actually uh, get questions in hunting ethics. Um, what I think we need to add today, uh, all over the world, is uh, communication. How do you communicate about hunting? Because it's, there are so many hunters out there that are just shooting holes in the boat that we're all sitting in, and it's becoming increasingly harder and harder for us to 
to communicate or, or remedy or patch up the damage that's being done by some of these, uh, you know, idiots, honestly, you know, ignorant idiots that are thinking that they have the right to show what they're doing and everybody's going to be able to understand it in the context that they are uh, delivering it in. If you know a little bit, and that's another problem, you know, there is no education about that. So why is there not education about that? Why is there no education uh, before you can get your hunting license? You need to understand how this works. So you at least have some hours in, um, in communication, not only communication on social media, but how do you communicate to your neighbor? How do you communicate to the person you meet in the supermarket? If we could just educate, and that's a part of the Urban Huntsman Project, trying to to dress these hunters up to um, to allow them to have a, a develop a vocabulary, inspirational vocabulary for them, so they can take these conversations. Because if all the hunters that we have in in Italy, for example, were good stewards and would take these conversations rather than having like an ostrich approach where they stick their head in the sand and hope that it's uh, somebody's going to stop talking to them or they have the fight and flight, which is even worse. Um, if they could be good stewards, if they could be good communicators, good advocates, if they could manage to use those five minutes that I figured out, if, if well, five minutes or less, uh, that um, I figured out you can, uh, you can gain an, a respect and understanding of your choices, even from people that are consider, considering themselves non-hunters. Think about the communication army we have out there. So there's a, Right now, one of my missions is is to try and figure out how we can activate this uh, a group of the hunters. Uh, there is also a group that I'm fully aware that we're not going to be able to communicate with and not going to be able to dress up to take these conversations in public. Uh, they're simply sure. not going to do it. The elder generation we have uh, in Italy, there's a, a, approximately 35% of, of the hunting population in Italy are the baby boomers. Uh, in statistically in the U.S., I think it's around the same. Uh, and worldwide, we have between 30 and 40 percent of the hunters of baby boomers. And these people, I'm sorry to say, but they're, they're not going to be able to change it. They're not going to be able to comprehend it. They're not even going to be able to, are not willing to, don't want to even in, engage in it. But what if we could activate the younger generations? What if we could have, the, what if we could give them a vocabulary that they could communicate with uh, on their day-to-day -day basis, at least some basic understanding of how you communicate on social media uh, to your neighbor, to anybody, and explain this. I think big, big problem and big part of the, the challenge is that we are uh, a bunch of, of men that are in many ways uh, have a, still have a male chauvinistic uh, kind of outlook on many things. And, and I think the hunting culture is, is definitely a fault in that. And one of the things that we can't do because we are not men, if we do, is talking about how we actually feel. Yeah. So what is hunting without explaining how we feel? Hunting is killing. So in the eye of the general public, if you take the emotional part out of it, it's killing. It's nothing else. It's stripped down to killing. So we need we need to shift that around. We need to allow the hunters to speak about um, to speak about what they feel about it, what it gives them emotionally, why they do it. But many of us, you know, many of these hunters, and I find myself sometimes, even though I've been communicating about hunting, I've been communicating for as a profession now for for. 35 years or 30 years, I still find myself kind of uh, pushed into a corner every now and then and not being able to articulate myself well enough for me to explain exactly what the essence of this, um, this very uh, internal drive and personal drive I have to go out and do this. Yeah, it's, um, it is a very difficult ask it's you know trying to communicate something that is so personal so ancient and important to you uh it's not always it's like asking someone about their religion sometimes it's like they're not going to mm -hmm. fully be able to tell you everything that that goes into that for them um but i agree with you that allowing 
kind of allowing the you know people to be a little bit more vulnerable and um, allowing them to express the emotional side of of killing uh, is important because from the outside and and I talked with um, Tyler Sharp about this mm-hmm. when I, growing up from the outside not growing up in a hunting family I had that impression as well yeah. you know because uh, that's what I saw and, mm-hmm. and you know I didn't really see the other aspects of of food and traditions mm-hmm. and ethics and management um, and so to me it boiled down to killing like yeah. you're saying yeah. so I totally agree with you there um, to, speaking of, of Tyler Sharp I know that you've uh, contributed to Modern Huntsman. I've I've got a few of their issues, and you've got articles and uh, recipes in there. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about your experience in Eastern Europe. Uh, I was just reading through volume, I want to say volume five, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and you had a story in there that you wrote with Tyler in uh, in Hungary. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. So um, we had two trips, two trips, uh, two two stories that we did kind of back to back. First, we were in. Uh, in um, in Romania, in Transylvania, oh, okay. Romania, and then we uh, we went to Hungary afterwards and did a different story there. Um, I had an interest in in seeking out. Um, I had a, a person co- contact me from from um, Romania, um, uh, an outfitter there that I found interesting. Like I have quite a few outfitters contact me and and invite me uh to come there and, and do stories uh, yeah yeah uh, but you know there's also the real life uh, that has to be lived with uh, you know <laughs> making money and things like that so now i'm trying to figure out a way but anyway not to to detail so much about your question from your question here um romania the Carpathian mountains are called the uh, europe's last wilderness so i have had for years now uh, a, a strong interest in strong drive to come over and experience it and this uh this uh, gentleman silvio reached out to me and said why don't you come over um and we'll go hunting together and um there was a couple of reasons why i said yes to this first of all because it was up in the mountains of transylvania um which is I don't know, maybe the most famous hunter of all Dracula's area. So there was a, a little bit of nerdiness to me that I wanted to go over and actually see that area where that, that inspired the novels and the castles and that. So there was a bit of a fairy tale aspect uh, for my reason of, of going to Romania. But I, I visited Romania before and uh, honestly, I don't remember when it was, but it was right after literally right after they opened up and i think it was 89 that the uh the kind of the east block let go of romania and it, it became part of europe so there was a tremendous change but i remember the impact that it had on me back then uh when i visited the last time um there was such a contrast in cultures there and, and the way that people live because you had areas that was now being blown up around the you know, around the the lake and the Black Sea there. Uh, um, yeah. You re- we rented a car and we went uh, 15 minutes outside of that uh, outside of that area, and um, and we basically had people driving around with horse and carriage. You know, uh, so there wow. was just a sharp con- contrast there, and I wanted to to experience that again. Um, so there was those two aspects of it, and. And um, it just so happened that that Tyler was actually coming over for to to Europe at the time, and and uh, um, and we were able to do this this story together, these two uh, these two trips together, which was amazing because that was actually the first time we met in person. We worked together now for for quite a few issues by by then, oh, and cool. we were, we always uh, there was a lot of uh, synergy in our our way of thinking and and our way of communicating. Uh, the mission why I started the Urban Huntsman Project was very similar to, you know, identical to the reason why he wanted to start um, the Urban Hunt- the Modern Huntsman uh, magazine. So, um, so it was it was uh, two amazing trips, and we hiked uh, up and down these mountains um, day and night on the 
on the hunt for a red stag and uh, the red stag are are statistically 20% larger in that specific region than there are in the, wow. the rest of the Europe. Uh, um, for, so for listeners, the red stag is, uh, in the elk family, very similar. Yeah. Um, very similar. Yeah. The European elk essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tyler had two chances and I, uh, I snuck myself in on, on one of Tyler's, uh, uh bulls that were, we were coming from two different sides and, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, I didn't realize when I first saw the, the bull, I didn't realize that Tyler was actually, um, much closer to it, but over on the other side of the clearing, um, he's been, he'd been walking the, the opposite, opposite way around, uh, a big cluster of, of trees. And we haven't seen each other for, I don't know, an hour and a half. So I had no idea that he was actually uh, like 300 yards further over to my left and wow. looking at the same bull. So, uh, I didn't get a chance on it. And Tyler, who was much closer, didn't get a chance. I'm, I'm pulling the trigger and that. The, I think the first bull that he had a chance for had a couple of broken times and it was the very first day and the very first hunt we were out on. So he was like, oh, okay, I'll wait. But uh, you know, it didn't, it, it, the shot didn't present itself for the rest of the trip. Yeah, it was a cool format. Uh, the way you guys wrote it kind of in conjunction you the, the story, uh, it's sort of a photo journal, series of pages yeah. and you get a snippet yeah. of Danny's writing and then a snippet of Tyler's writing. So Tyler's describing, yeah. you know, having this bull in his sights and then the yeah. next, you know, the next page you're describing the same bull, not knowing yeah. that you're, uh, you're yeah. looking at the same one. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. It was a, it was a creative choice from, uh, from Tyler's side that uh, I wanted to do kind of this photo journal, um, over, over that specific trip in, in Romania. It was, it was an incredible trip and I'm, I'm happy to reveal that I'm actually going back now in a, in a ten days or so uh, for wow. a second visit for uh, a new project coming up. So, so that's cool. exciting. Good luck to you. Yeah, thanks, mate. I uh, I've got quite a uh, season starting here. This is my first year living in Colorado, and um, I recently went out and put a trail camera out on some some public land and um, went back to retrieve the camera and ran into cow elk two black bear and then a big bull elk so uh, the season opens tomorrow i think uh so i'll be heading out this weekend trying to to why are you you talking to me why you're not out there uh, pitching a tent already (laughs) i know yeah as as soon as the weekend is here uh i'll be out there trying to find that bull again but uh he was already out there you'll be out there robbing elbows with the other 600 hunters that are trying to get at the same bull (laughs) i know i know sorry i tried to (laughs) yeah i I tried to find a spot that was a little bit off the beaten path and it's a tough hike to get there so hopefully the pressure will be a little less yeah um, but no, I mean it's gonna be super cool, beautiful terrain, and and it's not only that. Does it is it only for bulls or are cows opening too? Or yeah, either sex, uh, archery only during September. But uh, okay. uh, I can shoot a a bull or a cow. So uh, this hopefully will be my first elk uh, mm-hmm. if I'm successful this year. So I, I'm not gonna be picky. But now that I've seen that big bull, um, yeah, of course yeah. you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll also have a bear tag. Okay, good, good, good. But yeah, yeah I'm I excited. I harvested uh, I harvested one black bear uh, in New York. Uh, so that's certainly I don't know if you've been out for for bear before, but that's definitely a very special experience for sure. It's you know until recently I wasn't that interested um, because I, I always kind of said I'm not really going to kill anything that I don't want to eat. Mm-hmm. But I've learned a lot more recently about how great the bear meat is and the fat, and so now I'm pretty interested. I mean, I'll I'll prefer to to eat bear meat over the, the majority of venison. At least the bear really? that I that I harvested. You you know it's a it's kind of a hit or miss because you can have a bear that's been eating off a you know an elk carcass, a rotten elk carcass for for the last week, and if you harvest that. You're not gonna get the same flavor as the bear that uh, that I harvested that's been eating uh, berries and acorns for the last uh, two yeah. or three months, and and um, you know um, apples from the wild apple trees or 
they're gonna taste different. So it, it really yeah. depends on that. But the the beer that I got was was uh, really really uh, tasty and and my my entry into that. I had many chances before. I took it with um, it was Bo also, and it was very nice. close. And it, it's a, it was for for my uh, my book my my hunting cookbook. Um, it was kind of like that finale. We we were hunting hard up in the Adirondacks for for almost a week six days i think and then no luck there and we were about to call it quit and we had one day left up in the catskills which is two hours north of, of new york uh, where i had my house up in woodstock we had one area there and i i figure you know let's let's just try this last chance we have before uh, i need to f- start writing the story and have the deadline to submit it for the for the publisher uh, and get the book actually, you know, designed and to the printer at the right time, and it presented itself, and it was a quite quite an amazing experience. But previously, on my um, on my chances, I I never had a desire to to draw back or, or harvest the bear. Uh, it was just something emotionally in me that didn't allow me to do that. And um, what changed it is. An interesting story, and I think we do, we were t- started talking about teachers and and people who can uh, can give something and inspire us to a different way of thinking and communicating. Uh, in my case, this was a uh, First Nation chief. Uh, I went to British Columbia to go fishing on the Fraser River for uh, for salmon on a reservation uh, there with a, a friend of mine who was uh, also First Nation. And um, and I spent the day there with a, a chief of one of the local tribes, who is also a chef. Um, and when we were done fishing, we had a, a two-hour conversation interview on the sitting on the side of the Fraser River, and he started explaining about hunting bears and what it meant to them, what it meant to them spiritually, and how they honored the animal and how they celebrated the animal, and they believed. Um, uh, they believe that the, the spirit is somehow transferred over to the hunter that takes it if it's done the right way and they use all parts of the animal. So after that, my, my thought process is my emotional kind of um, emotional point of view on, on taking a bear started changing. So um, and then it was uh, a couple of years later, I, I had the chance with a bow and we actually went out for it and I, I was mentally prepared to it. A couple of things there. I did read that story um, where you went to to British Columbia, and you were talking about how they they told you how to consume the salmon that you caught, the Chinook salmon mm-hmm. that you caught, and it also had to do with absorbing parts of its spirit. Can you tell me about that experience? Yeah. So the uh, first of all, before I was allowed to to fish on the reservation, there uh, there is an offering to the river. And typically, you offer uh, you offer tobacco. Uh, I'm a non-smoker, but luckily, my assistant was a chain smoker, so he had a <laughs> he had cigarettes uh, to share. And uh, um, so we 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 basically said uh, thank you to to the four corners, and then we said thank you for the river, and then blew the tobacco into the river. And it it is whether or not you believe in in some sort of a spiritual connection or that we. Uh, energetic connection between all living things if for nothing else you can appreciate the the honoring of of these um, natural environments and resources that we are tapping into and i deeply appreciated their respect for the nature and the respect for a salmon that we hear most people don't really give crap about you know it's just a fish and it's getting pulled into the boat and uh, is not even getting killed right away. And, you know, there's no emotional kind of connection or, or respect for this animal in many cases, or for many people at least. And there's a whole bunch of people that have a tremendous respect for it. But I really appreciate that uh, first the, the respect right off the bat uh, with the offering. And then secondly, after, after we got the salmon and we cooked the salmon, uh, uh, the, the chief came over to me with the, uh, with the head. It was kind of split in two. That was how it was cooked. Up this stick uh, on a on a fire next to the 
he said something in his native language and he said now you take the the head that is now you know split open and um and you basically suck out the brain and suck out the eye of the salmon so now <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was interesting, and it was, of course, it was full of sand and everything. So that was kind of a, a mouthful in more than one way. Um, <laughs> but it was essentially for um, for transferring over some of the the salmon's energy over to you, so you could see what the salmon was seeing. You could um, you can uh, understand what the salmon was thinking is uh, its trials and tribulations and overfishing and, and you will be an advocate you will be part salmon you will understand what um, yeah what it's going through and and therefore understand that you are kind of a part of it and it's part of you and therefore you need to do everything that you can to to help protect this kind of a uh, energetic life cycle that that we are all in and I thought that was you know, whether or not you believe in it, I, I, I so appreciate the teaching in that, that we are part of something bigger than we have the responsibility. We, you know, we are smart enough to figure out fire and, and therefore our brain grew and it grew so large that we destroyed the planet. I mean, what a fucking paradox. And now maybe it's time that we start, maybe it's time that we start thinking about it differently. I mean, not maybe, of course it is. Of course it is. We we know we know what we're doing to this planet here, and that's um, luckily it's reversible. So let's see how that's gonna go. But uh, but I appreciated that experience. And that was uh, that was a very profound for me, a very profound experience for for many different reasons. And parts of that trip was also uh, I had to attend a powwow before they would actually even allow me in on the reservation. Um, and I was just an observant. I was the only white person there. Although all the rest of them were natives, and I was walking around with a giant camera and for, uh, trying to stick it in the face of everybody and take portraits of these incredibly beautiful people. That um, specifically the elders, uh, it, it, they were just fascinating and, and beautiful to me in so many different ways. They were not the uh, they were not the best models. Uh, <laughs> the majority of them did not appreciate the big camera. But uh, little by little, uh, as a it's kind of the minutes and hours progressed and they have seen me come around several times and they've seen how the the younger generations of the the first nation people was super proud of their their traditional clothing that they were wearing and and they oh, that's cool yeah it was, it was really cool and it was beautiful to see that they're embracing it and they're not not feeling like they have to to hide it anymore they're not being uh uh, a washed off, you know, the culture is not being forced or washed off them by force or, or by government institutions anymore. And they're actually proud. And that was, it was beautiful to see. Yeah, I find myself, um, you know, being devoid of, of hunting traditions myself, you know, not inheriting those traditions. I find myself easily um, wanting to, wanting to grab onto other people's traditions. So I read about, uh, you know, the, the practice of, putting uh, some leaves in a, in a dead deer's mouth for the, mm -hmm. the journey mm -hmm. ahead. Those things, even though I, like you said, even if I don't necessarily um, believe in, in all the aspects of it, I think the intention and the taking the time to respect and honor that animal yeah. is, uh, is a really important gesture. And it's something that, you know, um, can, can start putting you on the right path uh, in terms of being observant and respectful yeah. of, of what you're taking from yeah i mean i mean if it's specifically to that note it, it's incredibly important to tell that part and to show that uh, you know we are there's so many people on the, on the social media that are just showing them the, themselves with a trophy you know a dead animal and and the, the trophy is not necessarily a bad word it's not a negatively charged word but when you're showing it yourself like that with one picture after the other with a dead animal it becomes something negative it becomes nothing else than that it becomes a bunch of people that are just running around killing wild animals for no reason when you have no context uh, when you're not seeing the food that's ending up and the elk that is being shot or or the elephant i don't know if i would ever take an elephant that's something emotional for me again but when you see that the that this elephant meat is now feeding a village uh, for 
two or three months ahead, uh, you know, then then you understand the cycle and then you understand maybe it's uh, okay to do that. But when you're just seeing the trophy picture, you know, it's a, that's the problem about the communication that the hunters have not been educated in how they actually communicate, specifically now within the last 10 years where social media can, can mean either the, uh, the thrival or, or the death of, of a culture or a choice like hunting is yeah. for us. And it's a shame because I think a lot of those people that you're describing probably have an intimate knowledge of their local ecology. They understand these animals really well. They Mm -hmm. know how to hunt them really well, obviously. And they probably do have more respect for that wildlife than they're portraying. But for some reason, like you touched on earlier, they don't feel comfortable um, being open or emotional about it. It's more uh, sort of a, a machismo around the hunting culture, which, uh, I'm glad you're trying to change that. I'm, I'm on board. I think it's, uh, you know, something I'll, I'll continue to support. Mm. And, um, I see it's getting dark over there, so I don't want to take any more <laughs> of your time. You probably have to cook for your family, but, uh, if people want to find your project, your cookbook, uh, any of that stuff, where should they go? Uh, they can just head over to www.theurbanhuntsman.com, uh, website or Instagram, uh, the urban huntsman. Um, uh, those are the books on there. I have any. Uh, there's parts of the book, uh, not the entire book. Uh, still, it's still, it's kind of like a coffee table book, so it's not like a downloadable book or something like that. But some of the some of the stories are are featured on there. Um, so they can do that, and then from first quarter of 22, they can find me on Wild TV. Oh, really? Yes. That's big news. Hey, I saved the best for last. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Are you, so have you already filmed it? No. Well, that's why we're heading over to Romania, and we're heading to Hungary, and we're heading up to Scandinavia. On a quest to find these voices that I've been talking to you about, these uh, contemporary hunters that are managing to, uh, to successfully communicate about hunting in a different way and uh, it's my it's my hopes and dreams that by having them coming in and and seeing their stories and understanding what they do and and how they produce this content that they are producing and how they are communicating about it that other people will get inspired or will take notes from from their experiences. Um, so we have uh, wow. thirteen episodes coming in in total, and about uh, seven or eight of them are going to be travel episodes where we are going out and and visiting uh, um, these guests on show that can help us uh, find words and articulate what hunting actually means for the contemporary person that are um, looking forward and not looking backwards and and trying to figure out how to communicate in a public space and and um, there's a there's a couple of uh, amazing women on there that are doing a, a great job in, in drawing in some of the softer values in that one of them is such a badass or they both are but at the same time they're softer values that are getting introduced in so I'm really hoping that this is um, this is going to be a great inspiration these 13 episodes will be a great inspiration and I'm happy to say it's presented by Modern Huntsman. So, um, oh, okay. so Modern Huntsman uh, will will feature some um, a part, a written story that I'll write for each one of these thirteen episodes, and there will be some uh, images in there and one uh, recipe that goes into uh, Modern Huntsman magazine for for each one of these episodes, and then. The content, well, parts of that content will also be shared with different hunting publications all over the world. Some of them will have uh, some exclusive content and also non-hunting publications because at the beginning when I started the Urban Huntsman Project, uh, I didn't go to a hunting publication to publish this. I went to a food publication and I did that on purpose because I did not want to talk to hunters. I did, but uh, it was not as important for me to talk to the general public to show the connection between the food and also to show them that hunting is a part of one way of, of getting these incredible meals on your on your plate. Man, that's super exciting. I can't wait to watch that. Uh, is it going to be broadcast, I assume, in English? It's going to be broadcast in English, yeah. So Wild TV okay. is, is a, traditionally a Canadian uh, uh TV network station, but they are now going global from uh, September, uh, September, October, uh, with um, 
it's subscription, both app subscription and, and the streaming through the, the internet. So it's global, so everybody can watch it. So it's super, super exciting. And for any uh, potential <laughs> sponsors or advertisers out there, hit me up. I got good <laughs> stuff for you. <laughs> well, I'll be subscribing to Wild TV just to watch that when it comes out. Uh, Thanks, congratulations on that. That's, yeah, that's really <laughs> exciting. Uh, and I appreciate your time. It is now pitch black over there. So uh, apologies to your it wife. Is. I'm sure she's <laughs> waiting for dinner. Uh, but uh, thanks for your be. time, Danny. Yeah, thank you very much for reaching out, Dylan. I appreciate the time and uh, good talk. Maybe we can do it again yeah. one day. Yeah, if you're ever in the States uh, and you want to come hunt in Colorado, uh, I think we could we could make something happen. Uh, sounds good. I think <laughs> season two might be a return to North America. Let's see. Oh, man. Yeah. Love it. All right, man. Take care. Cheers, mate. You too.